Our Father, the psalmist said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice. Not everyone when we speak hears. Not everyone when we speak listens. But he was very clear. I love the Lord because he hears my voice. And you hear our voice and you know our hearts. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. And you made us, you created us. You understand us. You get us. You know what makes us tick. You understand us when we don't understand ourselves. And that is a great mercy. It, it calms us down. When we're unsure, we can always come to you. We thank you for the fact that Christ is our Savior continuously. That he came to die in our place and to die for us and to take our sin upon him so that we could be forgiven and renewed and born again. But as we continue through life, and it is a journey and it is a trail and it is a road, we encounter each day different challenges and different obstacles and uh, disappointments and setbacks and detours that we never saw coming. And at times we're baffled and we're confused and we get uh, angry. And at other times we just run out of gas and we lose hope. But thank you that you are always there and no matter what our condition, you understand. You get us. So we can come to you. And even when we can't express it with our tongues, you can read our hearts. That's a great benefit. That's a great gift to have that kind of understanding from you. So we thank you for that. Because we've got guys here that are all over the map in what they're dealing with. But what grace, what mercy we've received from you. And the thing is, you never turn us away. We just always keep coming back. And we never want to be out of touch. So, for those who are in particularly tough stretches of trail, uh, so hard and so difficult that they've lost heart, May you restore to them perspective, restore to them uh, the truth that you're abundantly available to us in tight places. You don't abandon, you don't desert us, you're there. Encourage us, Lord, that you'll make a way, you'll make a path, and you'll show us the next step as we seek you. The psalmist said in 142.3, when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. 
Thank you that you know our path. Thank you that you know our next steps, that you've got a plan, and that you'll bring it to conclusion at the right time, in your way and in your time. And there will be a day when our time on this earth is over and we'll breathe our last. And that's when it really, really gets good. Death is nothing to fear. It's just the entrance into the next world which Jesus has prepared. Give us this perspective often, we pray, in your great name. Amen. So tonight we are finishing up Second Peter. We have called the series, we've given it the title, uh, Peter's Last Will and Testament. We got that from Second Peter chapter 1, where he said in verse 14, Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, uh, Peter knew that he didn't have much time because he goes on in that verse and he says, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And if you've been with us in this study, you know that this was written towards the end of a four-year persecution under Nero. Uh, it was the persecution that, um, well, First Peter was written at the beginning of the persecution, around AD 64. Nero died in AD 68. That's when the persecution came to an end. Uh, this was probably written around 67. So Peter didn't have but weeks, months yet to live. So he is writing to these believers who are under tremendous persecution to remind them he, he keeps hammering home that he wants them to remember that when he's gone, I want you to remember these things. He's been hammering away at the false teachers because the false teachers do so much damage. The false teachers distort the Bible. They distort the gospel. They just distort the word of Christ. And they look like they're the real thing. And they look like they're uh, in, in the camp but they're not. Uh, externally, they say the right words, they've got the right vocabulary, but they are, um, they are different inside because they're fueled by lust. They're not fueled for God's glory, they're fueled by their own glory. So he's been hammering them pretty hard. Now what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna make seven observations about the very last thing that Peter addresses to them in Second Peter here. Uh, seven observations about his last words, and we're going to hone in, beginning with verse 9 down to verse 18, which is the end of, of the epistle of Second Peter. So let me give you the seven observations. I'll just go ahead and give them to you, and then we'll peel back and break them down one by one. And it'll take you a minute maybe to get the rhythm of this thing. But here we go. First observation 
is that slowness, slowness is not to be misunderstood. Slowness is not to be misunderstood. Secondly, suddenness is to be understood. Suddenness is to be understood. So the first one is verse 9, the second one is verse 10. Third, set apart, but not speculative. Set apart, but not speculative. This isn't making any sense yet because we haven't read the text, but it will. Four, spotless and not stained. Number five, standing on scripture, that would be verses 14 through 16. And let me go back to number three, because I'm not sure I gave you the verse. On number three, set apart, not speculative, that, those are, would be verses 11 through 13. The fourth one, spotless, not stained, would be verse 14 as well. And then the fifth one would be standing on Scripture, verses 14 through 16. Number sixth would be steadfast instead of stumbling. That's verse 17. And number seven is verse 18, which is a stature. S-T-A-T-U-R-E, stature, that is growing, that is growing. So, let's pick up in verse nine of 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. I'm going to stop there just for a minute and make a comment. What he's really going after in, in 2 Peter 3 is the accusation of the false prophets that Christ is not coming back, that Christ is not returning. We covered this last week. So look over to verses 3 and 4 in chapter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, or some translations say scoffers will come with their scoffing, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, they felt like the Lord was going to return and it would be imminent. It would be immediately. Well, he was going to return, but God's calendar is a little bit different than ours. That's why in verse 8 he said, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Uh, God sits above time. God owns time. Time is a, a gadget on God's Swiss army knife. G God is above time. He owns time. God is not uh, measured by time. God is eternal. He owns time. Yet he works within time with us. 
but his perspective's different than ours because to us, a thousand years is a real long time. I mean, it's real long. But to the Lord, what did verse 8 say? Uh, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. Well, Jesus was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died for our sins, was buried on the third day, rose from the dead, uh, appeared to over 500 at one time before he ascended to the Father during that 40-day span after his resurrection. That happened 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years to us is a long time ago. But to the Lord, that's two days ago. It's the day before yesterday. So perspective, it's all perspective. Uh, the false teachers were saying that uh, where's the promise of his coming? Peter, you and the other apostles keep saying the Lord's coming back. Obviously, he's not coming back. And it's missing a lot of people up because they're in the midst of persecution and they want him to come back so that they can be relieved of the persecution and be taken to heaven uh, but it's not happening, and they're, the false teachers are confusing them. There's the context. We pick it up in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. There's your suddenly. We'll come back to that. Uh, you don't expect a thief if you, get, uh, if you get robbed or your house is burglarized or someone breaks in, it's sudden. You're not expecting it. The day of the Lord, when he comes back, it'll come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So, I don't watch too many modern movies out of Hollywood, but there is a channel that we have on our cable system and all it is is trailers for movies. That's all, it, it's just the trailers. I've watched that before. And it seems, I mean, I, I don't watch most of this new stuff. Uh, but it's, it's a kind of amazing to me how much of it is apocalyptic. How much of it is the world's going to end. Well, they're right about that. But it's not going to end the way they're portraying it in Hollywood. What a shock. <laughs> It's going to be different. It's already been set by God the Father. And it's fixed. There is a prophetic plan for the ages that's more exact than an atomic clock. We are right on schedule. And certain things are going to happen just as it has been preordained. And he's telling us what's going to happen. He's also saying that because it's going to happen, it should make a difference in how you live and how you behave. 
13, according to his promise, we're looking for a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, they twist, and they bring confusion when they do it, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the days of eternity. Amen. Peter's last words. So let's go back to the first observation. First observation is slowness is not to be misunderstood. Slowness, yeah. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is an interesting verse. Um, it, can be, um, it can be somewhat confusing, because it says God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. So here's a question. Do all come to to repentance. The question is obviously that they don't because judgment is coming. Jesus talked about judgment in Matthew 25 where he'll separate the, the sheep from the goats. Uh, he talks about in Matthew 7 the false teachers who say, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name and we cast out demons and we did works of power in your name. And He says, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, In Revelation 20, you've got it laid out that the judgment that's going to come upon everyone who has ever existed on the face of the earth, the sea will give up the dead. And if your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're separated from God forever. But if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're saved by the blood of Christ, and you don't, you, you, the judgment that should have come upon you was put, was put upon Jesus. So um, not all come to repentance. This verse can be a little tricky. When, when a verse, any verse, doesn't quite make sense, one of the things you have to do is back up and look at the immediate context. So when you're, when you're studying the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, there's always a context. When you're having a conversation with someone, uh, you've had this happen to you, your words can be ripped out of context. We're living in a day and age where they can uh, doctor stuff technologically and completely twist the meaning that you had in your mind. But if you really, and the whole purpose of Bible study is to get 
the meaning that was in the mind of the writer when they penned the words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not what you think it says, or not 20 people sitting around in a living room reading a passage and everyone giving their opinion, oh, I think it means this. Well, I think it means this as you pass your Krispy Kremes. Doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the writer who was writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit meant. Until I have the meaning that was in his mind, I don't have the correct interpretation. Of any text, there's one interpretation, one, but there are many applications. What did God intend when he put that in the mind of Peter to pen? Well, there's an explanation, but you gotta back up to the immediate context. If you look at verse eight, you back up to the previous verse. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That's interesting. He uses the word beloved in chapter three uh, four times. He uses it um, in verses one and two where he tells them that they should be uh, mindful. Um, he says, this is now beloved in verse one. Then he uses it in verse eight, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. He uses it again in verse 14, therefore, beloved. He uses it in 17, you therefore, beloved. Who are the beloved? They're the believers. There's, they are those who are loved by God and chosen by God and elect of God to be in his family. Uh, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So when you read verse nine, the Lord's not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Who is you? It's Christians. He's writing to Christians under persecution. And why are they Christians? You say, because they chose him. Yeah, but we love him because he first, what? Loved us. So he's writing to believers. The only way to be a believer in Christ is that God chose you to be a believer in Christ. Now this is where, this, this, is, uh, this is a hard doctrine. And it's hard to swallow. And it's one we fight against until you really start reading more and more scripture and then one day it's like a little light bulb goes off and you go, huh. And then it all kind of makes sense. Look at Ephesians 1, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. That means he has a plan for us. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in himself, according to the kind intention of his will. We think predestination is bad. The Bible says in love, he predestined us. He predestined me to what? To be saved. 
and to be and to be taken out of spiritual death and darkness and to become one of his children. That's why John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, that's, that's the incredible thing about the gospel. Flip over to John 17. In John 17, Jesus is praying for the disciples. And this is his high priestly prayer. And he's very specific. Uh, Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father has given to me will come. The grace of God, if you've been chosen, is irresistible. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? The fact of the matter is, we don't want him. We, we, are, we are so lost that we want nothing to do with him because we want to be our own gods and we want to be our own lords and we want to be our own masters. But in his goodness, what the Father has done is that before the foundations of the world, he chose some to be saved through Christ. That's why Jesus said, all that the Father has given me, they will come. Then he goes on and says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. He's talking about believers. I ask on their, and he's talking about the disciples. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So he's got the disciples, he's got the apostles, and he's praying, and he not only prays for them, but he prays for those who are chosen, who at this moment don't even exist yet. That would be us, 2,000 years in the future. So with that in mind, you go back to Second Peter, God is not willing that any should perish. Beloved, any of the beloved will not perish because they've been chosen and they have received eternal life through Christ. This is an encouragement because, you know, we're, we're living in very interesting days because there is such an all-out assault on the truth of the gospel, on the validity of the Bible, that a lot of young people who've been raised in church, in Bible teaching churches, who have known the gospel, who've received the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, perhaps it's happened in your family, they have what we call now deconversion stories where they don't believe anymore. They did believe, they might have shared the gospel, they might have gone on mission trips, but for different reasons. I'm reading a book right now by a a gal who has a ministry, um, and that's her story. She came to know the Lord, she was a pastor's wife, and then walked away from the faith. And now she's involved in an apologetics ministry, helping those who have lost their faith 
come back. And one of the first things she talks about is that young people get wounded by hypocrisy. And someone says something, or an authority figure, or someone who quote unquote is a strong Christian, and will cut them to the quick, will, uh, and they walk away saying, how can, if, how can that person be a Christian? If that's true, I want nothing to do with it. But there's this wave, there's this movement. So not everyone who walks away <coughs> is a hardened unbeliever. It's just that they are dealing with stuff. They're processing stuff. Didn't you process stuff when you were young in your faith with Christ? Yeah, we're, st we're still processing stuff. So if you've got someone that you love who's away, pray for them. Uh, let me give you a verse, if that's the case. Just because they're confused now, just because they're doubting now, doesn't, and just because they're denying the gospel now, doesn't mean they always will. Luke 22, verse 31. Interestingly enough, Jesus is speaking to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, will strengthen your brothers. You can pray that for your son. You can pray that for your daughter. You can pray that for grandkids that have wandered away from the faith. What's happening with them? Well, I don't believe in the scriptures anymore. They're being sifted by Satan. But I, I mean, just pray the scripture and put their name in. Nothing wrong with that. Just take them before the Lord. And Lord, as you prayed for Simon, I pray for my grandson. Say their name. Joey, Joey. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, and you're being sifted. But I have prayed for you that your faith might remain. And when you return, you'll strengthen your brothers. The Lord's going to use you again. I had no intention of going into that when I walked up here. So there's a reason I did. We need that encouragement. Um... If the Lord is slow back in 2 Peter, it's because to get back to the point, so those who are young in the faith, can they wander? They get influenced by someone, they read something on the internet, can it mess them up for a while? Yeah, so what needs to happen? They need to process, they need to be loved, uh, there needs to be conversation uh, without raising voices and you know throwing out accusations. You just, you just talk to them. You say, and then you let the Spirit of God do the work. Enough on that for right now. But to the point in 2 Peter, there are still people out there that have been chosen by God that at this moment are not regenerated, but in six months they will be, or in three years they will be. Or So the Lord's not slow, but he's going to bring them in. Second observation. Just as slowness is not to be misunderstood, so suddenness is to be understood, back in 2 Peter. So the false teachers said, their accusation was, 
that the Lord is not going to return. Peter replies in verse 10 by saying, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be fast. It's going to be quick. If you're carjacked, it's fast. It's sudden. If, uh, if you're held up on the streets downtown, someone mugs you with a gun, they step out suddenly. I mean, it's over and done in what, 60 seconds? I mean, it's sudden. It's unexpected. You're blindsided. The day of the Lord. You say he's not coming back? He's coming back. And you'll be shocked and you'll be stunned and you'll be in awe. It'll be sudden. This is not to be misunderstood. It's to be understood. Um, he'll come like a, a thief. Uh, Kenneth Wiest, Greek scholar, goes into great detail uh, on this. And uh, let me read it to you. Because we have, in verse 10, we read this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So it's, the end is not going to come through climate change. The end is not going to come through uh, plastic uh, floating off the coast of Hawaii. It's not going to, it's, it's not going to come through someone by mistake hitting the, uh, Dr. Strangelove hitting the, no, it's all under the control. It's all under the sovereignty. Uh, Wiest says this. He translates 310, in which the heavens with a rushing noise will be dissolved, and the elements being scorched will be dissolved, and the earth also and the works in it will be burned up. And then Warren Wearsby says this. Many Bible students believe that Peter here described the action of atomic energy being released by God. The word translated a great noise in the King James Version means with a hissing and crackling sound. When the atomic bomb was tested in the Nevada desert, more than one reporter said that the explosion gave forth a whirring sound or a crackling sound. The Greek word Peter used was commonly used by the people for the whirring of a bird's wings or the hissing of a snake. The word melt in 2 Peter 3.10 means to disintegrate, to be dissolved. It carries the idea of something being broken down into its basic elements, and that is what happens when atomic energy is released. Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus said in Matthew uh, 24.35. And it appears that this may happen by the release of the atomic power stored in the elements that make up the world. The heavens and earth are stored with fire, 2 Peter 3.7, according to Weist, and only God can release it. So if this is a type of atomic energy, it's not that there's going to be a nuclear war. It's, no, it's the work of God. But this is what's going to happen. Last week we saw where Peter said the world was created by water. There was a judgment of water, the flood, yet the heavens are reserved for fire. So that's how it's going to end. It's going to be utterly dissolved and annihilated. That's how it's going to end. And it's fixed. Let's go to number three. <clears throat> we are to be set apart and not speculative. 
Look at the next verse, verse 11. And this, see, what he's talking about here is biblical prophecy. What's going to happen in the future? Biblical prophecy can become a full-time hobby. Uh, Biblical prophecy can become Christianity to some people. It's all they ever think about. It's all they ever study. You've seen the, the massive charts. You've seen the diagrams. You've seen the plan for the ages. It's really easy to go overboard on this stuff. What we want to do is stay with what Scripture says. Uh, and some get into prophecy and they... I know of a guy that's been working on a book on prophecy for... Um, over 20 years, and it's pretty much what he does since he's been retired. Now, he can't get anyone to publish it, and there's a reason for that. It's because he's got these theories, theories that are not stated clearly in Scripture. But he's utterly convinced. And if you sit down to dinner and he's next to you, may the Lord be merciful to you. (laughs) Because you're going to hear about this (laughs) until the last drop is off the table. Look at verse 11. So after talking about the intense heat, the heavens are going to pass away, etc., etc. All right. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Do you see how practical that is? In other words, instead of going and spending the next 20 years and doing all your conjectures and your ideas and this and that and your theories and all that, see, this isn't designed to be speculative. It's designed... It's designed that we might live holy lives. To, to be holy is to be set apart. Um, the holiness of God. I mentioned last week Paula White, the prosperity teacher. Someone sent me a clip of highlights of some of her recent statements. And... I started to watch it yesterday, and I couldn't go beyond 45 seconds. But after a good night's sleep and eating my Wheaties this morning, I was able to be fortified, so I went ahead and finished it out. But it starts off by her saying and declaring that whenever I walk into the White House, I am on holy ground because I am at the White House. That's blasphemy. Wherever I go, it's holy ground. Really? Well, you know, in the Bible, if you're on holy ground, you fall to your face and you're grateful that God hasn't killed you. You remove your shoes. It's not where you go. It's where he is. And the attitude that you are displaying has absolutely nothing to do with the holiness of God because there's no humility. None. That's why we said last week she's a false teacher for a lot of other reasons. I'm claiming this authority. You're nothing. 
I'm nothing. He's great. But when you're on holy ground, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. <laughs> when you're on holy ground, Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. You are aware of your own mortality and your own sin and your own shortcomings. You're not walking around boasting about who you are. Prophecy, since we know what's going to happen, prophecy, and we know what's going to happen in the end, that should have the effect of changing how we live our lives. It sobers us. It, it's, it, it changes our behavior because the Lord is coming back and we want to be pleasing to the Lord. I, in my college years, I would often hear a guy teach who was famous for his prophecy teachings. And I heard him often, and I got to know him, and I got to know his family. Uh, and that's all he ever talked about. I, I, I can remember basically one other time hearing him teach um, on, on something different than prophecy, biblical prophecy. But that's what he was known for. That's what he, everything he published was pretty much about that. Um, and he had some ideas. Now, he was smart enough, he could get his stuff published, and it sold incredibly well. What was, uh, what, what was shocking to me as a young guy was when I found out with some others that as he was traveling all over the country holding these prophetic you know, conferences and speaking to thousands upon thousands, that he was living in a moral lifestyle. Um, married with four kids, but was sleeping with different women around the country. And uh, was not repentant. And as one guy who had worked with him for years, when he found out, said to me, he said, I, I, I don't know how I missed this, but this guy's a pathological liar. And he's still out there on the circuit. I mean, he's 193 years old, but he's still out there. And what's he talking about? Prophecy. Uh, but see, he's missed the whole point of prophecy. In light, what, what does verse, what does verse uh, 11 say? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, be, will melt with intense heat. Um, it, 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 the fact of all these things happening and that we know them to be true, these things should change our behavior. It, it should change how we live in our homes. It should change how we conduct ourselves in business. It should change how we conduct ourselves in lives because the eyes of the Lord are in every place. And if it doesn't reach into your heart, uh, 
2 Timothy, Paul says to his young cohort, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Now, the guy that was influential in my life as a young guy, he was... Uh, he paid a lot of attention to his teaching, to his writings. He paid very little attention to himself. He was, um, he was a walking train wreck that he covered, and he covered it pretty well. But you can be sure that your sin will find you out. And he had a trail of immorality, absolute trail of immorality. Watch, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Guard your heart, Proverbs 4, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. So we're told in Scripture to watch our hearts, to watch our minds, what we put into our minds, to watch our behavior. False teaching lives, leads to false living. And it's about a changed life. Why is this important? 2 Corinthians 2 Verse 15, uh, actually it starts in 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. Who is adequate for these things? We are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So when you're a believer, there is an aroma of Christ. And people can tell whether or not you share the gospel with them or not. So it, because Christ is in you, your place of work, or if you get to know somebody or whatever, you may not have a conversation with them about Christ, but because the Spirit of God lives within you, they're going to notice a difference. And there is a fragrance and there is an aroma. And for some of them, it'll draw them in. And, and before you came to know the Lord, there was probably someone that you came across and you noticed them and there was a difference and there was something about them and you weren't sure what it was. But then as time went by, you found out they followed Jesus Christ. And it had a positive impact on you. See, the aroma in your situation, led you to life. Others, the aroma, the fragrance, they want nothing to do with it. And when you got someone who was an expert in prophecy and traveling and speaking and doing all this and holding up their Bibles and selling their books and they live an immoral life and they're shacking up with women in every town they can, that doesn't lead people to Christ. That causes people, young people, who believed in Christ to walk away from Christ because there's no integrity, there's no gravitas, there's no congruency. It doesn't add up. You probably have that experience too. One commentator says this, when, when Peter says what sort of people ought his readers to be in English, this assertion sounds like a question, but it's an, actually an exclamation of astonishment a rhetorical device that does not expect a response. The phrase, what sort of people, translate the unique Greek term patapos, which could also be rendered 
how astonishingly excellent you ought to be. In other words, there ought to be a difference in our lives. And you see this all the way through Scripture. When Christ comes into our lives, he wants to mature us. He wants to change us. Uh, We're not who we used to be. We're not perfect, but we're in process, and we're growing, and we are changing. So if you look at Ephesians 4, you'll see this process. Ephesians 4, 28. He who steals must keep on shoplifting. That's not what it says. It says, see, because Christ is in my life, he who steals must steal no longer. But rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, like it used to. But only such a word is as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So it's to change my, um, my behavior. It's to change my speech. It's to change me from a thief into a worker. It's, it's to change me. And there, there is an aroma of Christ. There is a fragrance of Christ. And people, it is a noticeable, it is a tangible difference. C.H. Spurgeon said, as you walk through the streets of London, remember, you've got the reputation of God Almighty in your hands. That's right to the point. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. These are things Peter wants us to remember. Because it what it does is it verifies the gospel and the truth of the gospel. Um, number four follows right along with it in, in verse 14, and that is we're spotless, not stained and blemish. If you look at verse 14 back in Second Peter 3, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, look for what? A new heaven and a new earth. See, things aren't just going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed, and then new heaven, new earth. New Jerusalem. It falls right on the heels. uh, Revelation 20 is about the judgment of Christ, the great white throne judgment. Revelation 21, new heaven, new earth. Everything's going to be destroyed by fire, but then it's going to be replaced, and it's going to be unbelievable. It, it's, it's beyond comprehension for us now. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. But to the point in verse 14, therefore, beloveds, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. That's a changed life. It's not that we're perfect, because we're not perfect yet. Not till we go to heaven. But he's contrasting that with chapter 2, the false teachers, in verse 13, he says, they are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. Uh, I mean, the, the unvarnished translation would be, they are stains, they are scabs, they are open wounds. 
They are festering wounds. They don't know the Lord. But when the Lord comes into our lives, he begins to transform us. And we're in process. It's not fast growth, it's not microwave growth, it's slow growth, but it's growth. We gotta look at Revelation 21 real quick. Because we've talked about the fire and the intense heat and all that. So in Revelation 20, down there in verse 11, you got judgment at the throne of God and the motto of our culture is don't judge me, don't judge me. We're all gonna be judged. That's Revelation 20, verse 11 to 14, actually to 15. But then in 21, in fact, I'm gonna read 20 and write in the 21, because you see how tight they are. So 2011, because this is what is coming. This is not fake news, this is real news. By the God who sits above all things. His throne is in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. He's got a plan for the ages. It's on schedule. When is this going to happen? No one knows. He knows. He gave John a glimpse of it on Patmos. So 2011, a revelation. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the de dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you see, this is why we preach the gospel. Well, I don't want to hear about hell. Uh, I've heard it said, dysfunctional people don't deal with reality. Jesus said there's a heaven and Jesus said there's a hell. I'm going with Jesus. Because there's no one else like him. He's God. And then verse 15 goes right into chapter 21. John says, oh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer any sea because of the, why? Well, because of the fire. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Ah, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murders and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then he goes into more detail on the new Jerusalem. 
He talks about the 12 gates, the 12 foundation stones. Um, I'm telling you guys, this is going to be unbelievable. Look at Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of water of life. I tell you what, I love this. Because if you're in Christ, you're going to see this river. You're going to see it, you're going to be there. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of a light or lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. (laughs) These people were suffering, and they needed to hear this. Some of you guys are suffering deeply. Not from persecution. You're not in North Korea or in Iran. But there's other types of suffering And this truth gives us great hope. And that's why he wants us to remember, because what it does is it it solidifies us. So let me hit five, six, and seven very quickly. Number five, the importance of standing on Scripture, because it's Scripture that reveals the truth to us of what God is up to and what he's going to do. Notice he says this, Therefore, beloved, you look for these things, Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Now watch this, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Election is hard to understand. Romans 9 is hard to understand, but it can be understood which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. He's equating Paul's writing with scripture because it is scripture. The apostles knew they were writing scripture. If you go to 17, we'll get the sixth principle. Steadfast instead of stumbling. How do, you, how do you be steadfast when there's persecution, when there's hardship? Look at 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away, uh, carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. How are you steadfast? By standing firm. Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Stand firm. It goes on and says twice more. So how do I stand firm? I stand firm by being in the scriptures. This is why the scriptures are always under attack. You can't believe that. That's not true. Oh, that's not legitimate. That's not, it's a copy of a manuscript. And then, you know, it it was done at, you know, Kinko's and you can't trust that. Actually, it's the most trustworthy book in the world. Number seven would be a stature that is growing. Look at verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how do you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Right here. By um, watching over your life and your doctrine. Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Don't just be hearers of the word, James says, but be doers. He's coming back. Because we know that, as we stand firm in the scriptures, we'll grow in grace, in the knowledge of him, and in peace. And that, in turn, will give a fragrance and an aroma to those who are around us that as things get worse and worse are going to get panicky and panicky and panicky. And when they see someone who is stable and someone who's not fearful and someone who has joy and someone who sleeps at night, they're going to wonder why. And it's all because of him. We're blessed men. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for the truth. We thank you that it is meant to stabilize us and to comfort us and to give us great hope even when things are getting more and more difficult and challenging. So we don't lose heart. We make it our ambition to please you in everything we do. Thank you for forgiveness. We fall short every day. But thank you for grace and mercy. Thank you that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation. We're thankful for them. We pray that they will continue. We pray that great blessing will come upon our homes and our family. Even as we deal with adversity, as we stay steadfast in the scripture, and don't lose our perspective that you're in absolute control of our lives and that you're coming back again. And through your grace and mercy, we'll be with you forever. With grateful hearts, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.